Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged wastrel playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged wastrel is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're tackling Slaves of the Abyss, the 32nd book in the Fighting Fantasy series. This one is from 1988 and is written by Paul Mason and Steve Williams, with illustrations by Bob Harvey and cover art by Terry Oakes. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I need to thank a new patron. This is a kind soul who has gone to patreon.com hjdoom and pledged some of their hard-earned cash to support my nonsense. By doing so, they're helping to fund the bonus episodes that we'll be doing all this year, and by way of thanks, everyone who pledges gets a bunch of gaming stuff, what I done wrote. The list currently stands at three game books and two role-playing games, and all being well, there's going to be another new game being added to that list in the near future. So thank you so much, Simone, for putting your hand in your pocket. It is very much appreciated. Now, let's look at Slaves of the Abyss. This is not a book I ever played as a child, although I did find the colour illustration strangely alluring. It features an evil head looking out in front of a series of prison cells which hang in space with faces and arms pushing desperately through the bars, while slightly see-through flying reptiles circle aimlessly about them. It's a pretty mad image, especially given that the prison cells seem to be functionally two-dimensional, and it suggests a rather more trippy experience than the back cover, which lays out a rather more standard kingdom-under-threat setup. But that back cover does at least provide a rationale for the rulers to turn to the omnipresent independent sword contractors rather than trusting to their own armed forces. Turns out the army's already busy doing army stuff, so we're already a step ahead of the last episode when we covered Tunnels of Fear, when there was a big question mark over what on earth anyone had been doing for the last five years to deal with the crisis currently afflicting the kingdom. Both of the authors seem to have been part of the swirling collection of people that cohered around Games Workshop in the middle to late 1980s, both working as editors for various publications and contributing writing to a variety of projects in the gaming space. They did do a second jointly written game book in the fighting fantasy canon and worked on the Riddling Reaver adventure module slash book with Steve Jackson, Paul Mason contributed to further solo written game books to the series, so we'll be seeing more of their work in general and Paul Mason's work in particular as the podcast progresses. I've no idea whether this one is going to be any good, but since Chasms of Malice has set the bar so low that it's less of a bar and more of a slightly raised bump on the ground, I feel reasonably confident it will be of at least middling quality. There's some reasons for optimism and some reasons for caution, I think. On the side of optimism, they haven't messed with the basics of fighting fantasy too much. We're not getting the proliferation of weird mini-systems, and I always appreciate that restraint, especially in a first book. On the side of caution, there is a time mechanic. You have 20 boxes which you have to check off as you progress through the adventure. If you get to the last one, it's game over. While I love a race against time as a concept, it's not something that's been implemented super well in the past. There's a fun twist to this one in that two of the boxes have section numbers. When you check them off, 
you get to turn to that section to find out what bad thing has happened due to your terrible timekeeping skills. That's a neat idea and hopefully it plays out as well in practice as it does in theory. The book does point out that the time boxes are entirely abstract units of time that do not directly correlate to any real world unit of time. So at least they've got an excuse for it not being super consistent, unlike Star Strider, which struggled with things either taking far too much or far too little time to make any kind of sense. Now, I said that they hadn't messed too much with the rules, but there are a few little adjustments that bear looking at. Once again, the rules for gaining skill have been sorted out so that you can actually get a skill bonus from a magical sword, for instance. There's also a rule that rolling a double six in combat counts as a killing blow. You can only do this if you're armed with a sword, which is cool. It limits that and gives your starting weapon something nice and unique about it as well. On a double six, a killing blow is not going to come up all that often, but it'll be exciting when it does, and I think this is a great addition to the core combat rules, not least because it gives you a theoretical chance of killing even giant dragons and the like, which have, you know, off-the-charts skill scores. So, yeah, I like that very much. We also only get five provisions down from the usual ten. It's been changed in the past, and I think it makes good sense. Ten provisions was too generous, really. There's not a magical potion of restoration to be had either, and I think that's also fine. The potions of recovery always felt as though they'd be better as something you could find through play rather than just part of your starting kit. As a famous adventurer, rather than some non-entity in this story, we also start with some cash. Alas, we may be famous, but we're not good with money, apparently, because we start with a paltry five gold pieces. Now, I know the gold piece is the most unstable currency ever and fluctuates in value wildly between books and, indeed, often sections of books, but I'm going to assume that five gold is a couple of nights of food and accommodation at the fantasy equivalent of a travelodge. So, we're not broke, but I don't think we are, by any stretch of the imagination, rich. I have rolled up my adventurer, who I have decided to call Mangrove Whippersnapper, because I think that sounds suitably famous. They have a skill of 11, a stamina of 20, and a luck of 12. With everything out of the way, uh, reasonably promptly for once, let's dive straight into Slaves of the Abyss. Still the most metal name in the fighting fantasy canon. These are troubled times in Calamere. No sooner had its ruler, Lady Carolina, got over the death of her husband than she was flung into a war with the rival trading state Alchemist. After a sea battle in which many lives were lost, it seemed that Calamar had prevailed. Yet there was more to come. Rumours spread of armies massing on the northern borders. Bay Han, never a friendly neighbour, was said to be preparing for an invasion. Acting decisively, Lady Carolina ordered all her armies to the northern borders. The mountain passes of the borders could be defended with ease. If the armies of Bay Han were allowed to reach the wide plains of Calamere, however, they would wreak untold damage. So she's gone with her eggs-in-one-basket strategy. I wonder if that will come back to bite her on the behind. You arrive in Calamere just as the last troop of soldiers are departing. You find yourself in a city strangely deserted. 
Life goes on, but without the many brightly costumed warriors who used to parade so proudly down Calamere's winding streets. With the soldiers gone, the criminals thrive. You bar the door to your room at night and sleep with your sword beside your bed. A few weeks pass. Then, one morning, a wild-eyed messenger rides into the city, yelling incoherent warnings of an invasion from the east. Less than an hour after he disappears into the palace, a servant brings you a note on stationery bearing the seal of the House of Rangor. It is a summons to appear before Lady Carolina herself. Seems your fame as an adventurer has reached her, and in these dark days the lady has need of fearless warriors. So, quite a lot of made-up names in this early stages of the background. But what are you going to do? It's bargain basement fantasy writing. When you arrive at the palace, you find yourself in the company of ten other adventurers. Several are known to you by sight, and one, Sophia of Blacksand, by name, as you have shared dangers with her on more than one occasion. Before you have a chance to exchange names and greetings with the others, you are led inside by a servant. You are ushered into an audience chamber to face five nobles behind a huge black wooden table. In the centre sits Lady Carolina, resplendent in ceremonial jewellery, the sword of office on the table before her. To her left is her cousin Madhyarios, a fat fellow with a nervous twitch in his nose. Beyond him sits Dunyazad of Ictian, a small woman who is reputed to be the wealthiest person in Calamere. To Carolina's right are Saige the Silent, an imposing woman of ancient lineage, and Isaiah Albader, the stern-faced judge. Truly, you face the five most important people in Calamere. Wow, those were some fun names to try and pronounce out loud for the first time. I hope none of them rock up again, because if they do, the chances of me pronouncing their name the same way as I did just then are minimal. You bow, and Carolina swiftly explains the situation. With the army's many leagues to the north, Calamere lies unguarded. Now a messenger has arrived from the easternmost regions, telling of villages found deserted. It seems that an army is advancing on the city from the east. It must be barbarian raiders from the Kulak Isle. A rider must be dispatched at once to fetch back half of Calamere's army. Meanwhile, the city must be defended in some way. Carolina explains that her loyal chamberlain Ramades, the invincible, most feared warrior in all the southern lands, is away on a quest for a fabled relic. She praises you all for your past gallantry and asks that you help her and gain the gratitude of the whole province by undertaking the defence of the city. You may be few in number, but surely the glory will be all the greater. So that is the background. Uh, there's um, little mini illustrations breaking up the background, one uh, showing a lovely little hourglass with the sand visibly running out. There's a hooded figure reaching out in a sinister fashion, which is pretty good. And then there's two that are slightly more odd. There's one that shows three stages of a hand opening, so a closed fist, a partly opened hand, and then a fully opened hand with a jewel hovering above it, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say is just Bob Harvey showing off that he's pretty good at hands. And he is pretty good at hands. And he's showing it off even more in the fourth of the little mini illustrations, 
because it's just a bunch of hands. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hands in all, attached to arms, rest of the body's completely invisible, just hands reaching up as if a pack of school children were volunteering to feed the classroom guinea pig. Um, so yeah, they're, they're quite odd. Um, I'm not entirely sure what they're supposed to convey, but he is pretty good at hands. I will give him that. I mean, this is bargain basement fantasy hack work, but that's fine. I don't mind that. I like the detail that there are 10 of you who are volunteering. That's fun. How can you refuse such an appeal? The other 10 are quick to volunteer for the task, and your voice joins theirs in pledging allegiance to Lady Carolina. This is your chance to become more than a wandering adventurer. You will be a true hero of legend. You listen as the five nobles begin to lay plans. One must ride to the northern passes and summon the army. Another must ride east to scout out the invaders. The rest must remain in Calamere to use all their wits and ingenuity to prepare a defence. What do you intend to do? So you can either... We can either volunteer to ride north to scout the east or to remain behind to defend the city. Well, that seems like a really big choice. That seems like three completely different adventures. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's probably not actually three completely different adventures in this book, but maybe it will prove me wrong. I'm going to reject defending the city out of hand. I just don't want to share the glory with a bunch of other adventurers. I want to do something fantastic on my own also i don't really play well with others in a lot of ways so i think i'm probably at my best as the lone wolf the least dangerous of the three sounds like riding north to get the army on the grounds that it's traveling across terrain that the army's already traveled over so if there's any major issues to be had i suspect the army would have found them scouting to the east does sound the more heroic we know who's coming from the north by Han. We don't know who's coming from the east, really. So I'm going to volunteer to scout to the east because that sounds the most exciting adventure. And I do abhor a mystery. So we'll go east. You are sitting at a table with the five nobles, eating a fine meal to fortify you before they give you your final briefing. They are being waited on by their own servants, while Carolina has assigned one of her pages to take care of you. Madherius warns you against taking any incautious action yourself. It is most important that you return to tell us of the nature of the menace so that we may know how best to defend against it, he explains. While Don Yazad is in the middle of advising you to rest at the Temple of Forga, you feel a light touch on your leg. You look around and see the page who is waiting upon you walking away. Looking down into your lap, you see a folded fragment of paper. Page must have dropped this as he refilled your goblet. Do you want to pick it up to read it straight away or slip it into your pocket to read later? I'll slip that into my pocket to read later, I think. Um, I think probably it's not really the done thing when someone has surreptitiously given you a message to sort of bring it out and open it up like you're reading a proclamation. So yeah, we'll slip it in the pocket to read later. Pocketing the scrap, you listen attentively as Dunyazad suggest that you stick to the roads. Though they will carry you in a roundabout way, they will be far quicker than chancing a ride across country. When you have left the table and are alone, you examine the scrap of paper. It reads, Beware, you are watched. 
by a thousand eyes. Good, good. Who doesn't love lots and lots of eyes? I assume the eyes are attached to things. It's not just going to be a big pile of eyeballs in the corner. A thousand eyeballs. That'd be a big pile. So we'll, we'll assume they're metaphorical eyes. I mean, they're real eyes. They're not metaphorical eyes. They're actual eyes, but they're attached to people and or things. You are led straight down to the stables to choose your horse. While you are preparing to leave, tall Sige approaches. The voice is low, almost inaudible, and you understand how she came to be called the Silent. She tells you she has a magical item which will aid you on your journey and bring you the luck of the gods. It is a pomander of rare herbs. If worn around the neck, it will also remove your need for sleep. It is passed up to you by Sige's servant, a poor deformed creature who shuffles slowly and wears a hood, no doubt to hide his piteously ugly face. Starting to think Sige might be a wrong'un, Sige quietly wishes you a safe and fruitful journey. Bundling together your possessions, you hurry into the bustling courtyard. With no time for ceremony, you mount your steed and pick your way through the crowd to the gate. A swift ride along the way of Flint brings you to Calamar's Grand Gate. So, got a orange stuffed with cloves that obviates the need for sleep. I can only assume that the smell of cloves must be literally overpowering. You ride until nightfall. Although you are eager to press on, your horse is tired, and it would be too dangerous to continue in the darkness. You dismount and prepare for a night to be spent out on the open. Tick off a time box. 19 time boxes remaining. So, even though we do have a magic pomander that stops us from sleeping, Sige did not think to provide one for our horse as well. So, actual utility on this mission, not necessarily the best. Uh, but the text asks us whether we have the pomander. You tether your horse and see to her feed. Lighting a small fire for protection, you settle yourself down for the night. Hours pass as you gaze up at the constellations above you. You remember Sige explaining her pomander's power to arrest sleep. You are grateful for its properties when you observe several stealthy forms approaching. You lie still, feigning sleep. Your hand inches from your sword hilt. Do you wish to wait until they're almost upon you before attacking, or would you like to leap up before they advance further? I think I will leap up and see if I can just scare them off. In an instant, you are on your feet, brandishing your sword. You leap at the fire and launch a mighty kick at it. Fiery embers cascade onto the stunned figures of three black elves, and they yelp in pain. You prepare to do battle with them, but it seems they have had enough. They lope off into the darkness. That's nice. Simple encounter design, but... There's, yeah, two ways you can approach it, and kicking the fire at these elves seems to be the one that lets you dodge a fight, so that's cool. The rest of the night passes uneventfully, and in the morning you resume your journey. The leagues stretch on, and you see a range of mountains in the distance ahead of you. You pass through several villages, and are surprised at the surly reaction of the villagers. As you pass by them, you hear them muttering under their breath. When you stop to refill your water bottle, they do their best to ignore you. The sun is low in the sky when you enter the small town of Hashra, in which lies the Temple of Forga. You could travel a few more hours if you wished, 
that you would have to spend another night in the open. Tick off a time box. Do you want to ride on or would you like to seek hospitality? We were advised to seek hospitality, but I feel as though at least one of these advisors is the one who is secretly behind it because that's just the law in this situation. Still, with 18 time boxes remaining, I think we will seek hospitality. Forga is the god of pride, and his priests here in Hasra certainly have their fair share. A god of pride sounds absolutely awful. The old man who admits you to the temple looks you up and down, coldly saying not a word. You are led to see the high priest, a wrinkled, venerable old fellow who eyes you with distaste. So the lone dog dares to darken our portals once more with its presence, he snarls in a voice surprisingly firm for one of his age. Perhaps you would care to empty your backpack for us. Do you want to agree to empty your backpack, or do you want to refuse? I'm going to refuse, because this guy's got my back right up. It seems entirely in keeping with a god of pride to be absolutely unbearable, but uh, I think if I'd known that, I don't think I would have stopped. You are rapidly surrounded by priests carrying short staves. There is something very odd about their movements. They are well trained in the fighting arts, yet move jerkily, as if under some restriction. You are encircled by a ring of staves. So, three choices. We can draw our sword and attempt to fight your way out. I... Uh, no. I think rocking up for hospitality and then stabbing everyone... Even for me, that seems unhelpful. Trying to leap over the priest's arms and escape, that might be worth a punt, or surrender to them. Let's try leaping over the priest's arms to escape. So, uh, we need to roll two dice against our skill, and we need to get less than an I roll a six. Less than my skill of eleven, so we should be fine. You catch the aged priests by surprise. Fainting to one side, you take a couple of steps and then leap, sailing high over their heads. You land nimbly, pick yourself up and race out of the temple building. Grabbing your horse from the stable, you mount up and are soon away. You have been riding for several hours when you are forced to rein in by a battered fellow who staggers onto the road ahead of you and collapses in a heap. You dismount to see what the trouble is. Between gasps, he tells you of his misfortune. Oi, the legendary Tazbad, doer of mighty deeds, slayer of evil and seeker of truths, find myself staring death full in the face. I should never have occurred the wrath of the dark jester by seeking to foil his evil plottings. Tis true I levelled his palace and banished his warped minions from this plain. Yet a fool I was to believe this would truly vanquish one so steeped in evil. Even as I was making my way up from the ruins... His tentacles of malice were reaching out to envelop me, who the greatest love of my life, who I trusted implicitly, he wrought his foul revenge. A death spell is pulsing through my sinews, and even my iron constitution cannot resist it much longer. My only hope is the healer of Gaban, but I cannot go on without food. And even then the healer has his price, but I have no money. That I, keeper of the fabled fortunes of Foraznak, should die for the want of four gold pieces. His head sinks wearily on his shoulders and he sobs. 
tick off a time box. That's funny. Um, I like the idea that he's just been going on for so long uh, that, that you've got to tick off a time box. 17 time boxes remaining. So, I've uh, got a choice. Uh, there's a picture of him as well. He just looks like a gone-to-seed opera singer. That's very much the vibe I've got. Sort of a doughy-faced fellow. I think it is an image carefully designed to be at odds with his self-presentation. So we can either just give him the money and provisions he craves, uh, we can leave him to his fate, or we could question him further. Questioning him further does mean I have to do that voice again. Uh, but that's what we're going to do, because this, I think this rum cove is less than he claims. Tasbad continues at length with tales of his own heroic exploits, which grow ever more outrageous. You soon realise he is beginning to contradict himself, and you wonder if the man is truly suffering from a deadly curse. Tick off a time box! Yep, yep. Kind of inevitable. Um, if you agree to give him food and money, that's one choice, or you can doubt his tail and ride off without him. I'm not going to give him food and money. If he just asked me for it, if he'd just gone, I need food and money, I probably would have given it to him. But no one likes feeling as though they're being taken for a ride. I'm sure he'll be fine with his ability to lie at enormous length. I'm sure he'll just end up going into politics. So it'll be fine. Um, yeah, we'll ride off without him. As you ride off, he calls after you. I curse you, scoundrel. I will catch up with you one day and take my revenge. You ride for another hour, certain that you've left Tasbad far behind and then settle down for the rest of the night. Next morning, you are up bright and early and continue your journey. Soon you enter a small village, which you hope to refill your water bottle from the communal well. Tick off a time box. Do you have the golden fist? I do not, but I really want it. We're down to 15 time boxes, so the, uh, the time pressure does feel pretty acute as we go through the early stages of this adventure. Uh, yeah, uh, we do not have the Golden Fist, which is a shame. You approach the well, but your way is barred by several burly peasants shouting, You're not welcome here, horse thief! They don't look like the sort to listen to reason, so you spur your horse out of the village. You are beginning to feel that you are going to spend the rest of your life in the saddle. The weather is strangely humid for the time of year, and the occasional gust of wind from the east bring little comfort. The tainted by a fetid, sickly sweet stench. Some great foreshadowing in this. The road passes through a jumble of massive boulders and a jagged scarp rises on your left. Ahead of you, another settlement huddles beneath a huge overhang of rock. Strangely, no smoke rises from it. As you approach, you notice several objects littering the road. Shoes, bowls, tools... You dismount and enter the village cautiously, finding a desolate street, empty of people and littered with debris. From one of the buildings to your right, you can hear a faint knocking. You follow the knocking, search the buildings to your left, or hurry out of the village and press on. I think we'll follow the knocking. The knocking sound is coming from a large stone building which has the sign outside, Strange Cans Wine Emporium. Cautiously, you open the door and enter, stepping carefully over broken bottles. 
the shop is wrecked from top to bottom and the floor is puddled with spilled wine. A slow, regular thumping is coming from behind the counter. Peering over it, you can see a trapdoor set into the floor. A cask is wedged beneath the counter and the wall, preventing the trapdoor from being opened. Do you want to try and open the trapdoor, or would you rather leave the shop and look in the other buildings? I've seen Evil Dead enough times to be really, really, really cautious about things under trapdoors. It's like a Pavlovian response. Yeah, cellars and rattling trapdoors. Oh, they do not appeal. But having said that, I am nothing if not afflicted by terminal curiosity. So I am going to open the trapdoor despite tremendous internal misgivings. You dislodge the cask and grasp the iron ring of the trapdoor. No sooner have you jerked the trapdoor open than a pair of arms shoot out. Your legs are tugged sharply and you tumble down a short flight of stone steps, landing with a splash. God, it really is quite evil dead. You black out. You are brought round by a stinging blow to your head. Deduct one stamina point. Stamina now 19. Your mouth is full of warm, vinegared wine. You are sitting in a lake of the stuff, a foot deep, and facing you is a bedraggled wretch who swings at you once more with surprising vigour. Choking on the wine, you dodge his blow and stagger to your feet. You must defend yourself. So the wretch, it's a great name for a, an opponent, has a skill of six and a stamina of eight. For the first time this adventure, and after a, a decent chunk of recording, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the wretch. The corpse tumbles backwards into the wine which laps over it. You pause a moment, but there is no motion. Do you wish to examine the body or leave the cellar straight away? I will examine the body. I've murdered him. The least I can do is nick his stuff. You wade through the wine towards the spot where the body fell. As you peer down into the murky depths, an arm shoots up from the wine and grabs your leg. Caught off balance, you tumble head first into the dark liquid. A moment later, the creature is on top of you, its hands grabbing your shoulders and forcing you down. The wine closes over your head. Roll two dice, and we're trying to get less than our stamina. Well, I don't need to roll the dice because my stamina is still 19. I should have said the wretch did no damage to me at all. Hardly surprising for a creature with a skill of six. So, uh, yeah. By letting your right shoulder drop, you manage to twist your body out of the creature's grip and punch him with your left fist. You scramble to your feet and stumble towards the steps, knowing that flight is your only hope. Fear lends you strength. You race up the steps and through the trapdoor before your pursuer can lay a hand on you. Hastily, you wedge the cask back over the trapdoor to prevent the creature escaping. As you lurch out of the shop, the slow... Relentless pounding begins once more. It's a good little encounter. It was very uh, evil dead in the end. You slip into one of the buildings nearby and try to find some clue to explain the mystery of the abandoned village. You quickly realise that you have entered the house of a wizard or herbalist. Fragrant drying herbs, arcane books and scrolls and vials of coloured liquids litter a desk in the corner to your right. To your left sits a rune-carved table on which lies a half-eaten 
knuckle of cured ham. Across the far wall, you see a row of puppets dangling on strings from a high shelf above a cupboard. Do you wish to examine them, or do you wish to examine the rest of the wizard's paraphernalia? There is a picture of the uh, wizard's house, or the witch's house, or the herbalist's house. It's pretty good. All of the details present and correct, including three puppets hanging up on the wall, looking about as sinister as puppets usually look, which is very, in the case of two out of three of them, the third one just looks like Santa. So even with the natural sinister quality of puppets, it's, it's still basically fine. But yeah, we're going to examine those puppets to make sure they're not animated. I'm sensing quite a few interesting horror references. Obviously, Puppet Master is not a good film, but it is a very long-running horror franchise. That's one maybe being referenced as well. As you approach the row of puppets, your left foot squelches in something and skids. You've trodden in a sticky green footprint, one of a line which leads from the cupboard to the table and back again. The cupboard before you is crudely daubed with a rune, the sign of a single arrow. Do you open the cupboard with your sword ready to strike, or do you open it normally? As soon as you tell me to open a cupboard normally, I'm willing to bet I will forget entirely what constitutes a normal cupboard opening and just do it in a really weird way. Obviously, we're going to open the cupboard with the sword ready to strike. You have just enough time to glimpse a small, slimy green form cramped within the cupboard before you are engulfed in a choking cloud of gritty powder. You drop your sword and clutch your face. Your eyes burn. Your nose starts to run. Do you retch violently? Lose one point of stamina. Stamina now 18. Then, whatever it was in the cupboard comes tumbling out and worms its way between your legs. Do you wish to make a grab at it? If so, roll two dice against your skill. I do wish to grab at it. I roll another six. That is well below my skill of 11. Probably a terrible idea to grab this thing. The creature tries to slither away between your legs, but you grasp it and force it down by sitting on its back. Although it is slippery and you are blinded, you manage to get a firm grip around its neck. You are about to bang its head on the floor when it begins to sob. You pause for a moment while your vision clears, revealing the pathetic figure of a young girl coated from head to foot in foul-smelling green slime. Cautiously, you release your grasp and pick up the slender blowpipe she used to puff blinding dust at you. Pocketing it, you ask the girl her name. Good job I didn't stab her. She tells you that her name is Mima, and that she is the apprentice of the enchanter Enthymesis. She knows little more than you of the reason why the village is deserted. She has stayed hidden in the cupboard for the last couple of days since her master left. Before going, he told her to remain hidden, and he coated her in the green paste which he said would protect her. Did he now? She tells you that the evening before his departure, Enthymesis had been very worried by a divination he had performed. He had told her that he had to undertake a dangerous journey to seek guidance from Alethea the Sage who dwells in a shifting forest in the mountains of the north. Then he had insisted that she should remain hidden. Sure enough, she had remained cowering in the cupboard while a terrible din came down upon the settlement. Terrified, she listened to the hideous shrieks of the townsfolk. Finally, silence descended on the village and then you came, she says. If you have not already searched the wizard's desk, you may do so. And if you've already done so or you don't want to, you can leave the house. So we're going to search the desk. 
Good rummage through his stuff. I mean, he's out. It'd be rude not to. Rummaging among the vials and pieces of scrap paper on the desk, you come across a parchment stained green by a sticky syrup which has spilled from a cracked bottle. You hold up the soggy sheet, straining to read the scrawl which covers it. Can't make out all the words, just occasional snippets. Uh, and it reads, And do not leave the house until you are certain that the danger is past. Dot, dot, dot. Under no circumstances allow. Dot, dot, dot. Safe. Then you should make your way to your parents' village by... Dot, dot, dot. Find yourself in the shifting forest. You must ever follow the brush bearer's gloves or be lost for all time. Dot, dot, dot. Brush bearer's gloves. That's a clue, isn't it? So uh, from here, you can go and examine the puppets in the cupboard, which we've already done, or continue rummaging through the desk. Oh, double rummage action. Saucy. You glance through the books and scrolls, but the rambling texts mean nothing to you. The vials look more promising. Though many are cracked and their contents spilt, a few remain intact. Of these, you salvage the three which seem the least noxious, each containing an unexciting, cloudy brown liquid. Each is labelled in the same crabbed handwriting. You may risk drinking one or more of the liquids now, or you may take any or all of them with you. If you decide to take them with you, note down the name of each potion you take on the adventure sheet, together with the paragraph number which you should go to if you decide to drink it. You may drink one of these potions at any time that you would normally be able to drink a potion. That is, as long as you are not in battle. Remember, note down the number of the paragraph you are at before turning to the relevant paragraph for the potion you're about to drink. You should also make a note of the fact when you've drunk that potion, each vial contains only one mouthful. So once you've drunk a potion, it is all gone. Well, I feel like that could have been written a little bit clearer. So, uh, they don't have helpful labels. There's one called Golsh, one called Aral, and one called Zazaz. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to wait to try out those potions. Wait until we're actually in some kind of trouble. And as it is, I've still got all my gold. I've got max skill and luck. And only lost two points of stamina. There's really no reason to push my luck at this point. Ah, if you have the blowpipe, it tells you to turn to a particular paragraph that's pretty clever actually because using the object rather than the girl uh is a is a neat way of obfuscating what happens on the other fork of the narrative holding mima's sticky hand you make your way back to your horse you will have to deliver her safely back to her parents and she tells you that she knows the way to their village it is back the way you've already come but to leave her unprotected would not be the action of a hero Meanwhile, she's still covered in the green slime. Do you want to wash it off her or not? I don't really know. I'll, I'll take her home, but I'm not scrubbing her of the green slime. We have to assume the wizard was sincere when he said it would protect her. You leap up onto your horse's back and then hoist Mima up in front of you. Soon you are galloping back along the road which brought you here. You turn off the road leading back to Calamar and race along a narrow track which winds up the hillside. You can see the lands far about, and off to your left a lazy plume of smoke drifts into the sky from Mima's village. Tick off a time box. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about saying that you just have to be heroic. I think I'm probably okay with it. I think leaving helpless children 
to die is darker than a fighting fantasy book should really get. I think the archetypal fighting fantasy hero isn't a wholly benevolent character. They're people motivated within the fiction that the text creates by fame and fortune. But in general, they are sort of roguish types whose heart is in the right place. Your attention is drawn to the far end of the valley, way off to the right. You shiver involuntarily and the hairs on the nape of your neck rise. Your horse shies and whinnies in terror. A thick stench fills your lungs. The sparse slopes are being slowly enveloped by an advancing wave of black lava. Also, it seems. Your eyes adjust to the distance and you see that the oozing black mass is not liquid, but a seething ocean of people. Even as you watch, it seeps closer, spreading like a dark stain. You have found the invading army. Will you survive to make use of your knowledge? There are many more people in the horde below than in Kalamar's entire army. Do you want to ride down into the valley to take a closer look, or gallop off to your left to try and reach the village? I think reaching the village and getting shot of this sticky child is priority number one. So that's what we will do. You spur your mare along the back of the ridge, desperate to reach the village in time to warn them of their peril. Is Mima with you? She is indeed. Mima clings on for dear life as you spur your horse towards the village. As you approach the palisade, the large gates swing open and you are beckoned in by a worried villager. Mima slips down from the horse and rushes into the arms of her parents. You waste no time in telling the people of the danger they are in. They grab what they can of their possessions and livestock before fleeing. Finally, you find yourself alone outside the deserted village. The huge black army is in sight now, steadily oozing down the valley towards you. It is time to make your own escape. The black horde is behind you. It is still many miles from Calamere, yet it is engulfing everything in its path. Although you know of no weakness in the enemy, Surely Calamere should be forewarned. Evacuation may be the only means of survival. Tick off a time box. I haven't done that for a while. 13 time boxes remaining. So, big, big decision time. We can ride to warn Calamere. We can try and find out more about the enemy. Or we can search for Enthymesis, the Enchanter. So, we're going to do the last one of those. Enthymesis seemed to have a divinatory vision of what was going to happen and some idea perhaps of how to stop it although given that he did then go on to cover a child in jelly maybe he's not the most reliable guide to brilliant plans uh but anyway we'll we'll go go and try and find the enchanter you ride northwards into the mountains making your way carefully through wiry bleached grass there are no paths in these parts and the grass conceals potholes and ruts. Without a guide or marker, you have no way of knowing whether you are travelling in the right direction, so you trust your instincts and keep the sun to your left all the time. If you do that, when you end up going round in circles. Finally, you top a peak and gaze down at a cheerless plateau. The grass thins out, and your heart sinks at the sight of the barren plain, which stretches almost to the horizon. Then you spot something far out in the middle of the plain, 
screwing up your eyes, you stare intently at a small dot, perhaps a hut or dwelling. You spur your steed down the slope, and after a few hours' ride, you are at the fringes of the plain. You realise, with alarm, the wind is rising. Without vegetation, the soil on this plain is dry and sandy, and it whips up around you, obscuring your vision and stinging your face. Your horse rears, terrified, and you tumble from the saddle, your right foot tangling in its stirrup. Test your luck. Three. And we're automatically lucky as it happens, because our luck is twelve. So that's good. Your horse bolts, dragging you helplessly some distance before you are finally battered unconscious. Lose two points of stamina and tick off a time box. Ticky ticky time box. Stamina now 16. When you come round, the sandstorm is subsiding. When the dust finally settles, you find yourself staring at an expanse of forest. Its presence is inexplicable. You saw no sign of it before the sandstorm. Intrigued, you approach and lead your horse along a faintly marked path between the trees into the silent forest. Soon the narrow path forks at a massive creeper-strewn tree with drooping foxgloves covering its roots. Looking around, you see the undergrowth is thick and impenetrable, and you resolve to tether your horse here before investigating further. So we can take the left-hand path, or the right-hand path, or we can examine the trees. And if we take the left-hand path, we have to write down a number, a number three, and the right-hand path, we have to write down a number two. But we want to examine the tree and the plants because we had a clue earlier. The tree is gnarled with age and is being slowly strangled by the creepers which hug it. Foxgloves grow in profusion, all drooping elegantly to the left towards the sunlight which filters through the leafy canopy overhead. You may collect some foxgloves and store them in your pack if you wish. Now we were told to follow the gloves, I think. I can't actually read my note. My handwriting, even worse than the wizards, it turns out. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're supposed to be following the foxgloves, so we will we will take the left-hand path. That's the first left-right choice we've been offered, and I have been recording for over an hour. A little way down the path, you enter a small glade. In the centre, you can see a slightly raised mound of loose earth, with a neat circular opening just above ground level. From it protrudes a black human hand, scrabbling in the loose soil as if trying to get a grip. As you approach, you realise that the hand's colour is caused by a crawling layer of ants. If you want to rush to the man's aid and try and save him, you can, or you can try and avoid taking that risk. There is a picture. Uh, once again, Bob Harvey's gone, I'm really good at hands and drawn a hand uh, coming out of a hole in the ground covered in little dots, which I guess are the ants. And there's some left-leaning foxgloves in the picture behind as well, which I think might be worth doing. How heroic am I feeling? I mean, I'm not particularly bothered by ants, I have to say. So yeah, we'll, we'll try and save, save this unfortunate person, assuming they don't turn out to be made entirely of ants. Could it be that this is actually just some ants that are pretending to be a hand? That would be pretty weird. Anyway, we'll try and save what might be a man and might just be some ants who've learned a really weird trick. As you grasp the poor fellow's hand and start to pull, the ants begin crawling from his hand onto yours. 
By the time you've pulled him free of the ant hill, your arm is a mass of biting ants. But they are driven from your mind by the sight of the man you have rescued. He is covered from head to foot with ants. And seems none the worse for it. He is a symbiote, a foul mutant who lives with the ants that cover him in mutual cooperation. Yes, what's fouler than mutual cooperation? The ants which are biting your arms are beginning to draw blood. Lose one point of stamina. And you realise that they are softening you up so that the host can overcome you. You must kill him before you are eaten alive. The ant symbiote has a skill of 6 and a stamina of 10, so that should be pretty trivial. But every time it wins an attack round, more ants will crawl onto you and begin biting. And you need to make a note of how many attack rounds a symbiote wins. When he's won three, there will be so many ants on you that you will lose an additional one point of stamina per round. So ten stamina, yeah, it's not impossible. Yeah, another great little combat trick, very much like that. It's been a while since we saw a really clever riff on the combat system, I feel. And this is a really, really good one. So anyway, with that in mind, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the symbiote and I did not take any damage, so that was neat. Ants are still crawling over your body, biting you viciously. Lose one point of stamina. Seems appropriate. Stamina now 14. You roll around in the dirt and beat them off desperately. You tear off your clothes and brush yourself with leaves, then beat your clothes against a tree to rid them of the pests. Two paths lead out of the glade, one on your left and one to your right. You are just deciding which way to go when you are startled by an anteater which waddles out of a clump of orchids and foxgloves to your left, making straight for the mound in the middle of the glade. Where were you 20 minutes ago? Wishing him a hearty meal, you continue on your way. If you have three numbers written on your adventure sheet, turn to the paragraph they indicate. Otherwise, if you go along the right-hand path, add a 1. If you go on the left-hand path, write a 2. If you already have one of these numbers written down, you should choose the other option. We've already got the number two, so we have to take the right-hand path. Clever stuff in this. The path begins to slope down and you hear the sound of running water from up ahead. Soon you reach the banks of a fast-flowing stream. After a while, you hear a crashing sound from the far bank. A large and ugly troll is battering his way through the undergrowth which line the riverbank towing behind him a green leafy sapling. Do you want to swim across the river to attack the troll? Shoot it with a crossbow if you have one, which we don't. Or remain quietly where we are. We'll remain quietly where we are. I mean, he may be large, he may be ugly, even by troll standards, which I guess is the implication. I mean, to a human, all trolls are pretty ugly, but this one stands out as being very unfortunate. Other trolls would not care for them. So yeah, we'll just, we'll just keep quiet and let the troll do its troll thing. The troll soon disappears off into the undergrowth, still dragging the sapling behind it. You splash your face with the river water and prepare to carry on, refreshed by your rest. There is a faint path which follows the riverbank and you make your way along it. After a short while, it plunges back into the forest. So once again, do you have three numbers? We do not. If you have the number two, which we do, so we've got two and a one, then we add the number 
three. So we now have a three digit number which we can turn to, unless I've got confused somewhere along the way and broken their brilliant system, which is a possibility. We now have our three numbers, uh, two on three, so we can turn to that paragraph. Pressing straight on, you find the undergrowth creeping onto the path ahead of you. Soon it becomes difficult to push your way through it. You laboriously hack your way through, lose one point of stamina. Stamina now 13. Finally, you reach a clearing from which three other paths lead. There's a left and a centre and a right. I think we just go left here. That's what I think. The way forward begins to slope downwards and the forest floor beneath your feet starts to soften. Soon you are squelching through boggy ground with mud sucking at your shins. Flies begin to home in on you and the heat saps your strength. Lose one point of stamina. Stamina now 12. I think I might take this opportunity to eat a couple of crispy duck pancakes. So we'll eat one portion of provisions and take stamina back up to 16. After an hour's painful progress, the ground rises and the track you are on meets another. There is nothing to distinguish this part of the forest from the others you've been through. But you must choose whether to go along the new track to the left or the right. I will go left again. As you push onwards, you notice clusters of foul-smelling fungus growing on either side of the path. You have to pick your way carefully along the path to avoid disturbing them, in case they carry poisonous spores. You begin to remember tales told of southern forests, in which you can lose yourself in a maze of shifting trackways, wandering in circles until death from hunger and exhaustion catches up with you. That will make for a great podcast. Ahead of you, the trail divides into two. You may take the trail which slopes downwards slightly and to the left, or the other which leads off towards the right. Now, the left track takes us back to section 213, and we can go there and make the opposite choice, I think. Uh, we hack through the undergrowth again, losing another point of stamina. Stamina now down to 15, and this time we'll take the path on the right. The trail ploughs straight through the trees and you traipse along it for an hour before the monotony is relieved by the branching of the road. Um, okay, which leaves only two options, both of which we've tried before. really am very lost in this forest. I have starved to death in the forest. I clearly made some mistake somewhere along the way and wound up in a bit of the forest where, as far as I can tell, there's no way out. It just goes round and round in circles till you run out of stamina and food, which took me quite a while, to be honest. It's not the most heroic death I think we've ever had on this show, but it's not been like any other death, so for that at least, I'm sort of a bit thankful. Yeah, a kind of new experience. 
obviously it's just a way of eating a whole bunch of paragraphs uh, apart from anything else. But yeah, uh, right up until I got lost in the woods and just wandered in circles until I died, I was having a really good time with that one. So I am going to go and play it off mic and see what I think once I delve into the guts of it a little bit. But my initial impressions before I've done that is Slaves of the Abyss is a pretty good time. But yeah, sometimes first impressions can be a little bit deceiving, so that sets up a little bit of tension, a little bit of jeopardy for what I might come up with in just a few seconds. Tatty bye. Well, that turned out to be an irritating way to finish the playthrough. I took a five-minute break just before going into the forest to get a cup of tea and stretch my legs, and while I was waiting for the kettle to boil, I was thinking that this was going pretty well, and that this could be one of the very rare occasions when I actually got to the end on my recorded attempt to beat the book. Obviously, that didn't happen, but it was doubly annoying because I actually had all the information I needed to get through the forest. I just misread one of the entries in a typically dyslexic way and gone right when I should have gone left. How hard is it to go left? I always go left is the stupid thing and on this occasion always going left was absolutely the right thing to do. Stupid brains. I was actually quite pleased perversely when my second attempt also failed because at least that meant I would have failed even if I'd got past the forest maze. And it's a strange one because Slaves to the Abyss doesn't feel like a hard book to beat while playing because the fights are quite straightforward for the most part and there's lots of areas where the right choice is really well signposted. However, this book is a bit sly. It pretends to be easy but actually on closer inspection there's really only one path to the end. It's another of those books that felt pretty good when I was playing it for the first time but only revealed its cleverness when I started to do a deep dive into its construction. Looking back over the recent fighting fantasy books, this feels like one of the strongest entries for some time. Phantoms of Fear and Midnight Rogue were both good, but they did rely on interesting gimmicks to achieve their effects, and their structuring was not the most complex. Slaves to the Abyss is more of an example of writing with a very strong grasp on the fundamentals of game design and narrative design. The only real gimmick is the time system, which works fairly well. It's essentially another stamina score that can only go down. The book has plenty of scope for running out of time if you're injudicious with your decisions, but on a successful playthrough, it's only really there in the background as a threat, and I think that's the right call. Uh, it's kind of cool because it makes sidetracks into something dangerous, but of course, you know full well that there's going to be some stuff you need from sidetracks, and that creates a neat sense of tension between risk and reward. But crucially, I think you could remove the time system entirely, and this would still feel like a solid entry in the franchise. The gimmick is good, but it's not the only thing that makes this book strong. The two elements that I think elevate this book are its unity and its scope. It has unity in the sense that everything feels like it's working towards a broad narrative thrust. And it has scope in the sense that it manages to capture 
a sense of player freedom that makes the adventure feel epic and consequential. A good example of how these two poles of design interact is in the opening section, when you're given choices about which mission you want to accept, whether you want to find the army and bring it back, scope out the invading force, or just stay home to defend the walls. Now, you can only really go on one mission, but the other options have fun outcomes to either get you back on track or bring your adventure to a shuddering and fatal halt. If you choose to stay to defend the city with the less adventurous heroes, despite knowing that around eight people is almost certainly not going to be enough to defend a city, then the city will inevitably fall. And you get a lovely little flash forward to centuries from now, where a merchant is flogging your sword that he pulled out of the ruins of Calamare. This is something I really like, and it's something that I include in my own game books as well quite a bit. The ability to make really dumb decisions that you know are dumb, and see the outcome of your foolishness. I don't think it's a necessary part of gamebook design, but it's a great way to create that sense of player agency. Coming so early in the book means that you can easily explore the bad options for starting your quest without too many consequences for a, a failed run. It also builds the threat of the bad guys when you can see what happens if you refuse the call to adventure, although the book is delightfully cagey about specifying exactly who and what the bad guys are, that's something you're going to have to find out for yourself. And the fact that all three options are tied to the fate of the city, that gives it some unity on top of the sense of scope that it's created. Elsewhere, the unity is expressed through a subtle but consistent focus on insects. You'll meet a lot of insect monsters over the course of the book. In fact, you're being stalked by one particular insect monster, and if you start running out of time, you finally get to face this strange, robed, hornet assassin thing that's been pursuing you and moving ahead of you, a genuinely creepy, hidden adversary that you just can't quite get to grips with until you start running out of time. And the villain's main army is not so much a horde of humans that have been turned into slaves, but a swarm of magical hornets that go ahead of the army, recruiting new followers by capturing their souls and taking them to the abyss. It's not quite on a par with the likes of Island of the Lizard King, which is still probably the most unified setting of all the fantasy books, but it does help to suggest an environment with a definite flavour of horrible things with too many legs. It's not overdone either, you've still got your trolls and goblins to provide a sense of continuity with the other areas of Titan. I particularly like the symbiote covered in ants, though. It's almost the perfect fantasy monster, something that borrows from nature and then turns it into a monster that is completely impossible, but somehow also strangely plausible. I love the kind of design where you take inspiration from the real world and then make it weird. Where the scope comes into its own is when you find the enemy army and begin to understand just how bizarre this new threat is. You get to make real choices, and the temptation is to focus on the problem directly in front of you. But actually, in order to survive and move on to the next part of the adventure, you've got to take two lengthy detours. Uh, one of which is a trip to the forest, which we did in Search of the Wizard, and the second of which is a trip back to Calamar to report and engage in some fascinating skullduggery in the city. 
doubling back to where you started feels odd. It almost seems like you're giving up on saving the kingdom, but at the same time, it makes sense in the context of the mission you've been given. And I do think Slaves of the Abyss has an epic quality to it. It's so fascinating to me how one 400-paragraph book can feel short and claustrophobic, and another can feel like a vast, sprawling world. Slaves of the Abyss is very much the latter. There's a lot of travel across the landscape, but it never feels aimless. The various sections have a quest within a quest structure to them, which I always appreciate. It means that there's plenty of small victories on your way to the very difficult big victory. So even if you fail, you often feel like you're making progress and you're achieving something. The items that you're searching for are quite often needed fairly soon after you've found them as well, which is slightly more sophisticated design than the traditional scavenger hunt with a list of items you've got to have being presented to you towards the end of the adventure. We've also got some wonderful examples of my personal favourite trick in game books, which is where past events influence future events and it just creates such a sense of a dynamic world in which the other actors have their own interests and behaviours that feel independent of the player. Often in a game book and fantasy gaming more generally, you get the impression that the world is set up purely for the benefit of the player. Orcs sit patiently in dungeon chambers, waiting for the adventurer to kick the door in so that they can fight them. The dragon will always be found with its stash of treasure because what's the point of an unguarded horde? In this, there's a brilliant encounter with a river troll in the forest, which you can approach in various different ways. And later, it becomes clear you're going to encounter the troll again, and how you approach the second encounter partially depends on how you approach the first. Shoot him with a crossbow the first time, and you'll be fighting to the death. Uh, he doesn't like that. It's not his favourite thing, being shot with a crossbow. But if you ignore him and let him just get on with his troll business the first time you meet him, the second time you can actually try talking to him. It still leads to a fight, but one you can try and escape from at an early stage. And I just love that. How the troll reacts to you is dependent on how you behave towards it the first time you encountered him. That's such fun game design for me. And it also comes through in the section where you go back to the city and find that things have changed considerably for the worse in your absence and the safe haven you were expecting is now much more hostile. The book drops plenty of hints that there's intrigue and treachery afoot in the capital. I mean what are capitals for if not intrigue and treachery? It's a hackneyed trope and I'm sure many gamers have gone back to their home base to find some scheming politician has been up to no good in their absence. However, putting it in the middle rather than at the end is very unusual and provides a nice surprise because we've been conditioned to expect that going home to find it changed will be deployed either as the climax or as the coda to the main action of the quest. And there's a good lesson here in designing stories and designing adventures. Even a cliché can be made fresh if you deploy it at an unexpected time. It's like sticking a car chase with gangsters into the middle of an otherwise cosy murder mystery 
set at a grand house in the country. Balancing out this considered and interlocking design are plenty of more bizarre and surreal self-contained encounters, which are a bit more of a mixed bag, but in quite a fun way. The one I want to pick out is when you get to meet the Riddling Reaver, one of those intensely tiresome, supremely powerful and chaotic NPCs, who does you a massive favour, but in a way that still makes you want to punch him in the throat. There's something about these characters that always seem to get a player's hackles up. Thankfully, the Reaver's appearance here is relatively brief, but at some point I will have to cover the entire book devoted to the Riddling Reaver and his shenanigans, and that's going to be a sad old time, I suspect. These supremely punchable, smug, superhero NPCs always seem to me to come from the same design space. There is a need or a desire when you're doing gaming material to have access to some kind of deus ex machina of sufficient power that they can always get the players out of a jam. But you need to or you want to combine that with the desire to ensure that they're not someone that the players could automatically turn to whenever things get dicey. You want that get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't want it to be in the player's back pocket at all times. Hence, there's often a tendency to create forces of chaos who tend towards a dark whimsy that makes them unreliable and could easily cast them as antagonist as much as beneficent force of rescue. And that makes them aggravating on two levels. The first is that no one likes having an NPC get them out of trouble. It's kind of the opposite of fantasy gaming's premise that you are the hero. The second is that one person's whimsy is usually everyone else's fingernails down a blackboard. No one in fantasy gaming is looking forward to being saved, but they're particularly not looking forward to being saved by an overpowered character who closely resembles Scrappy-Doo. And the worst thing is knowing that they will never be able to get one over on these merry japesters. They're just too loaded up with nonsensical magic tricks to overcome because if they can take these clownish but intensely magical buffoons out, then they're no longer powerful enough to resolve story elements that are otherwise incredibly difficult to resolve. Now, the takeaway lesson is don't rely on Deus Ex Machina to resolve your adventure plot lines. That seems very straightforward advice, but you do always need something like that lurking in the background because it's not always appropriate to just kill all of the players or the player in the case of a game book. What's really important, I think, for a deus ex machina is that you try and deploy it in a way that demonstrates that the character or characters have screwed up but not in a way that makes them feel terrible about it and not in a way that builds seething resentment towards an aspect of the world you've described unless your plan is to then have the characters go and defeat that deus ex machina figure 
and gain a measure of psychological recompense for putting up with some naff practical jokes. At least here the Reaver's appearance is brief, but the fact that meeting him is actually a requirement to beat the book, and doing that means walking into a bad situation, knowing that it's a bad situation, that's a black mark against this story. And I think these characters always feel like a better idea in the abstract when you're creating them than they do in the execution. And that highlights one of the few issues I have with the book in general, which is that lots of things you need to do are nicely foreshadowed. Paying attention will give you a lot of pointers for the best way to proceed. There's some great clues hidden in the book. But sometimes you'll need to make strange choices in order to unlock relevant sections of the book. You can only get to the Riddling Reaver if you first go and visit the arrogant priests, as suggested by one of the nobles. But that interaction is always negative. So if you're playing through again, your instinct will always be to avoid it, unless you happened across the Reaver following your first visit. There is actually a backstory reason why the priests are being so obnoxious. They think you have something that belongs to them, which might even be the case, depending on how you played the opening. But their behaviour aggressively signposts that they're best avoided, even though that's the opposite of what you need to do. And I think it would be relatively easy to fix it by ensuring that the player has the opportunity to gain something from the exchange with the arrogant priests. Even if the item is actually useless, players do love filling their pockets with trinkets. So you can do a kind of meta signpost that there may be something worth doing in this area, even though the affordances of that area would tend to put you off. Because meeting people who are horrible is fun in and of itself, but it's not something you tend to want to repeat when you're playing through a game. And it's not a huge deal. And it does feel pretty good when you realise there's a whole section of the book that you hadn't even realised was there. But it does pop up from time to time as a distraction. And because the book is pretty good most of the time about signposting and giving you chances to rethink the obviously stupid decisions, and because the fights are not that hard, and there's not too many instant deaths from failed luck rolls and the like, it feels a little bit disconcerting to discover that a necessary part of the book is being secreted away behind incredibly specific and unintuitive choices. It's a bit like going to a party with a relaxed dress code and gradually realising that all of the other guests are wearing the exact same sequined underwear. And then an underpant inspector turns up to vet everyone on the dress code and you're wearing different pants, and suddenly the whole vibe of the party gets really strange. And yeah, they say you can stay. They even apologise for not letting you know about the matching pants thing. But you can't stop thinking about how they're all wearing the exact same underwear, and you're not. And then you catch a couple of people looking at you. Did they look at you funny? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's in your imagination. And it's not like anyone's being rude or shunning you or anything but the whole party has just become incredibly stressful so you go home early and then you lie awake trying to work out why no one told you about the pants and was it all an elaborate practical joke or is this just a thing that younger hipper people than you do all the time and you're literally the only one who's finding it odd 
It's not that there's anything morally wrong with holding a party that has a relaxed dress code for everything except underwear that's morally neutral. It's just at odds with the vibe that the rest of the dress code seems to be suggesting. And that issue aside, I do think there's just tons to enjoy in this book. It's not just the large-scale stuff. There's a pleasing effort to avoid padding out the book with endless combat encounters, which I do appreciate. I don't object to fights at all, and I've often said that even a simple fight can do a surprising amount of world-building just by showing you the sort of creatures and their aesthetic. But there are definitely some books where it's clear draft one came in 50 paragraphs short and the author took out the trusty salt cellar full of orcs and sprinkled them liberally over the manuscript more or less at random. Uh, so it's nice that that's avoided here. There's some good NPC work, especially when you're back in the city trying to work out who the inevitable traitor is. Many game book writers avoid NPCs unless they're merchants, old people with mysterious information of whom, to be fair, there is at least one of here, or referees in some obscure trial of strength. But here we get some lovely examples of how to make the world seem real through writing characters who've got a bit of backstory to them. There's a nice encounter with a beggar who tries to convince you that he's the world's greatest adventurer fallen under a mystical curse. That was lovely. There's also the aforementioned sulky priests who can turn up at a few different locations looking for their big golden fist. I like them a lot as well. There's a genuinely delightful encounter with some goblins in the forest where they engage in some comedic and fatal pratfalls before you get into the fight proper. And the sense that you're fighting possibly the worst goblins in the world is such a fun, light touch in a book that's otherwise pretty... Poe-faced, particularly as it gets towards its climax. There's even a chance to run into the guy who trained you as a sword fighter, who, it turns out, still has a few tricks to impart to you. And there is a wonderful sense of a world teeming with well-rounded people, even if the interactions with them are necessarily quite simple, thanks to the limitations of the format. NPCs are really hard to do well in a game book, and they eat paragraphs like nobody's business so it's always extremely pleasing to see authors not shy away from it but manage to do it with a light touch. The last thing I want to praise is the climax which is one of the most over-the-top showdowns I think fighting fantasy has ever seen. Having navigated your way through the overworld you then travel to the titular abyss in order to try and save the souls of the inhabitants of Calamere that the demonic master of the abyss has stolen. It's a fitting finale filled with complex decisions and lots of ways to come to a sticky end, particularly if you haven't found all of the various clues in the earlier part of the book. I only got through it by reference to the sausage-fingered bookmark technique, but I did really enjoy it. There's lots of things you need to do earlier in the adventure to have a good chance of defeating Bythos, and there's more than a few times where... You think you've won only to be faced with a new challenge. It's very tricky to get all the way through to the best ending, which I won't spoil, but it is one of the most unique endings to any game book I've ever played. What's nice is that even if you fail, it's fairly good about giving you some pointers to aid your next playthrough. It's not trying to totally hide all of its secrets. And as a location, the Abyss is exactly 
the kind of surreal nightmare nether realm that I just really enjoy. It's it's so my jam. The more so for coming after an adventure that odd moments of humour aside is very consistent and grounded. I should also mention the art. It's fine. Did you know that Bob Harvey is very good at doing hands? If you didn't before, you will now. One thing he does execute well is the aesthetic of Calamare, which is less Western Europe than other locations we've seen in fighting fantasy. It's a place that feels more like somewhere in Central or Eastern Europe. It's a subtle effect. This isn't fantasy tourism, which can either be cool or excruciating, depending on the circumstances and the level of research, but it does all help with giving the book a distinct flavour that is much less Merry England than many other books in the series. And Bob Harvey's art is one of the main things bringing you that subtle flavour of Eastern Europe. I also very much enjoy that the surreal cover art turns out to be replicated almost exactly as a location in the book, complete with a nice black and white inked version of the artwork, giant floating head and all. That's a delight, because seeing something really weird on the cover of a fantasy book usually means that they've just grabbed some random artwork from somewhere and slapped it on. But here, no, it's a part of the game world. You will come across it. Well, I think I've yammered on about this book more than enough. I think my summary is that it's got some weird issues around inconsistent difficulty, but it's much less hostile to the player than some of the other very tricky books in the series, and it's not obsessed with cheating to the detriment of the design, so the good more than outweighs the bad for me. It's got an intricate flow that makes great use of time, both as an explicit mechanic but also as a storytelling device. There's loads of imagination on display, and it's solidly written. I usually budget about a day for really digging into a game book, and this took me almost three days to fully digest, so that's really good value. Uh, it can be had for under 15 quid on eBay, which I think is actually a steal by the standards of other books around it that are much less good and command a much higher price. And there's always the PDF approach, which is completely morally fine for books that are out of print. That's all for this episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks for another bonus episode, which might just be more than meets the eye. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.